History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 73, The Karanos. Last time, we covered the Ionian War, both as a theater of the Greek-Peloponnesian War and as the Persian reconquest of lost territory. In early 408 BCE, the Spartans were fed up with their satraps in Anatolia and went to see Darius II in person where they laid their situation bare in plain, laconic terms before the king. Now it was time to win the war with Greece once and for all. But to do this, Darius needed to crack down. Clearly, if his subordinates couldn't handle this, it would require more direct royal intervention. But what to do? It's unlikely that Darius personally ever felt secure on his throne. Given all the revolts in the West, it's only reasonable to assume that something happened in the East, too. Not to mention, there were other issues unfolding around this time. We're now in the ballpark of the Armenian Revolt, and there was unrest in Egypt. On top of it all, Darius was in his late 50s, and the Persian king was a warrior and a general, but never really an admiral. If he wasn't going to send the Persian fleet, he certainly wasn't going to repeat Xerxes' march through Thrace. But he did have one ace up his sleeve. His second son, Cyrus, was a veritable prodigy. Even though his mother, Parisatis, advocated forcefully to give Cyrus every possible privilege and advantage, he would have to be for the job Darius had in mind. At just 16 years old, 
and quite probably 15, depending on his exact birthday, Cyrus the Younger was given a mission. Go to the Aegean coast and win this war. To do this, he was given 500 talents of silver, approximately seven and a half tons of precious metal. He was also given a set of titles. Darius saw Tissaphernes' attempt to place Sparta and Athens off of one another as a failed experiment, which had dragged out the war. In fairness, he was probably right, but as punishment, Tissaphernes was demoted. Tissaphernes was now the local governor of Caria, a position once held by the rebel Emorges, while Cyrus the Younger became satrap of Lydia. But the prince was given another position, a rare office intended to win wars in complex theaters. He was named Keranos. For almost 2,400 years, Cyrus was the only known Keranos in Persian history, and that meant that we kind of defined that word as synonymous with whatever Cyrus the Younger did. That changed in 2012 with the publication of Aramaic documents in Achaemenid Bactria, a collection of leather documents written on with Aramaic from the reigns of Artaxerxes III to Darius III from modern Afghanistan. It is now part of the private Khalili collections in London. These documents revealed another Karanos, or rather, Karanaya in Aramaic. This was a man named Histaspes, yes, another one, who we will deal with more in his own time, but his role as Karanos in Bactria helps define Cyrus the Younger's position more clearly. If anything, a Keranos in Bactria was probably a more common position. There were constant tensions and conflicts with the Saka of Central Asia in a region stretching from the Caspian Sea to the Hindu Kush. A single military command of the whole region, or even just a large swath of the region, must have been more necessary there than the Aegean. Cyrus had been made the supreme military commander of Anatolia. He ruled from Sardis in Lydia, but had absolute authority over the satraps of Phrygia and Cappadocia, i.e. the other satrapies with a significant Greek population. The only person in the empire who could supersede Cyrus's authority in his own territory was Darius II himself. And I cannot stress this enough, he was 16. Traditionally, Persian men came of age, eligible to hold military and political office for the first time at 20. Typically, they had just started their education in politics and trade by age 15. We can only imagine the thoughts going through Tissaphernes' head when this upstart princeling appeared in Sardis in March 407, with an eviction order, and started making himself at home. But for now, the former satrap took it in stride as Cyrus began making contact with his new subordinates. Namely, Barnabasus, the Cappadocian satrap Mithridates, and the new Spartan commander Lysander. 
one of his first orders to these subordinates was issued to Pharnabazus. An Athenian embassy had just arrived, presumably to try and talk the Persians out of supporting the Spartans so heavily. Cyrus had them imprisoned, so as to prevent Athens from catching wind of the new political order before he was ready. Tissaphernes tried to explain. Cyrus was both young and a new arrival. He didn't understand the danger of empowering one Greek city over another. Cyrus once again flexed his authority by rejecting Tissaphernes outright. The next step was to assess his financial resources. Of course, there were the 500 talents allowed from the royal treasury, and Cyrus was committed enough to this cause, and presumably to impressing his elders, that he would include some of his own personal income in the calculations. As a prince, he commanded mines and estates all around the empire as personal property. The royal allowance would cover about one more year of Spartan salaries and maintenance. But his new territory was wealthy too, and could supplement that royal grant. So he gave the Spartans a pay raise. Up to this point, the base pay for a Spartan rower from Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus had been three Greek obols per day. Obols were a small Greek coin, about one-fifth the value of a Persian silver siglos. Three obols per day was considered a reasonable but subsistence wage. Cyrus raised it to four obols per day. Still small, but a 33% increase that won him favor with his new troops. He had also, just inadvertently, set the going rate for mercenary soldiers for the next 70 years. Within a few decades, a four-obol man was just Greek slang for mercenary. It will not be Cyrus's last encounter with Greek mercenaries. At the same time, Athenian sailors were barely able to get the subsistence rate, and naval commanders had become almost entirely dependent on piracy and coastal raiding to cover that. More than two decades of warfare and the loss of many subject states later, Athenian coffers were functionally empty. Their best hope for ending the war was to wipe out the Spartan fleet again and force the Persians to spend another year on an expensive rebuilding project. The imprisonment of the Athenian embassy bought Cyrus a few months, but in late autumn 407, Alcibiades arrived at Samos to take another shot at Ephesus. It took a few more months for the Athenians to get their bearings in the new situation, and they must have been desperate because they risked a naval engagement in January 406, at the height of the Mediterranean's winter storms. Once again, the numerical advantage was minimal. Alcibiades commanded 80 ships to Lysander's 90. The difference was that there were some Athenian ships left on Samos, while this was everything the Perso-Spartan alliance could muster, because even Cyrus wasn't authorized to call in the full Persian navy. But it worked. 
The Athenians were caught near the city of Nautium before they could reach Ephesus and lost 22 ships in the battle. The Spartans didn't lose a single one. It was another miserable defeat for Athenian leaders who were barely holding on to the territory they still had in the east. But it was a gargantuan morale boost for the Spartans. It even prompted an Athenian squadron that had been fortifying the nearby city of Phocaea to abandon their post and go north to raid the Hellespont instead, which allowed the Persians to reoccupy the city and its brand new fortifications. That spring, Lysander's appointment as Spartan admiral ended, and he was replaced by Callicratidas. Before he went back to Sparta, Lysander made sure that Cyrus was in control of all of the remaining funds from the royal grant. Callicratidas saw this as an attempt to undermine his own popularity in the fleet by disrupting their wages. But Lysander mostly seems to have understood Cyrus's position quite well. The prince was there to keep a royal chokehold on the politicking in Anatolia, and he couldn't do that if he didn't know the Spartan admiral in control of his treasury. This still got them off on the wrong foot. From Xenophon's description, Callicratidas probably formally insulted Cyrus, or breached royal protocol somehow, and Cyrus insulted him back by not meeting with him or dispersing more funds to the fleet in a timely manner. The story between several different sources, and even with Xenophon's Hellenica itself, is a jumble of explanations. One that the Greek authors don't suggest, but I will, is that Cyrus the Younger was maybe 17? and got along really well with Lysander. He may have just been grumpy about this obstinate admiral replacing his friend. That's the problem with autocratic teenagers. Their emotions affect policy just as much as any autocrat, and they still have the emotions of teenagers. One modern author, Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, says that there's something sociopathic about Cyrus's behavior. And I just don't think that makes any sense. There's something remarkably immature about Cyrus's behavior, because he was 16, and that is magnified to the scale of power placed in his hands. His decision-making is entirely in line with the conditions of other Achaemenid royals, We've just never seen those decisions in the hands of a kid before. Even with this rocky relationship, Cyrus did disperse the funds and even backed the construction of more ships. At their next engagement, a huge Spartan fleet of 170 triremes blockaded the port of Mytilene on Lesbos and ravaged a much smaller Athenian force of 70. On land, Cyrus led his army against a rebellion in Pisidia, a mountainous region of southern Lydia, and the exact nature of the rebellion isn't clear, but it seems like it must have been relatively small. The success didn't last. Athens had been building ships too, and an equally gargantuan Athenian fleet emerged out of the west, 
this was the first real showdown between truly full-sized fleets in years. The entirety of both fleets had faced off a few years earlier, but you could hardly say they were at their peak strength and peak performance at the time. Now, 155 Spartan triremes faced off against 120 of their Athenian counterparts at the Battle of Argenusai, and it was a disaster for Cyrus and the Peloponnesian fleet. The Athenians broke out into eight separate squadrons with co-equal commanders, who were allowed to do whatever they wanted and whatever they saw fit with their own ships. Meanwhile, Callicratidas was trying to command the entire Spartan fleet. On one hand, that was the way things normally worked. But on the other, the Athenians adapted to the fact that everyone had gotten used to these much smaller squadrons for years now. This disoriented the Spartans, who couldn't pick out and defend against any specific tactic, as the Athenians wrapped around them. A well-placed Athenian ram killed Callicratidas and sank his battleship, causing the Spartan formation to break up and attempt to retreat through a partial encirclement. They lost 70 ships. It was a military disaster, a financial catastrophe, and an embarrassment for Cyrus. What should have been a glowing victory for the Athenians turned sour when word reached Athens. Despite only losing 25 ships and employing creative tactics, none of the eight Athenian commanders had taken it upon themselves to rescue their own men from drowning or being taken captive. Six of those eight commanders were sentenced to death and they fled into exile. The Spartans once again offered peace in the face of a major defeat, and the Athenians once again rejected it in favor of trying to win a more decisive victory. At Cyrus's personal request, Sparta sent Lysander back to the fleet to take the reins and give the prince somebody he could trust. And Cyrus the Younger needed that right about now. His cousins had come to town. Mitraios and Autoboisakis were the sons of a Persian noble called Hieromenes. He had married one of Darius II's sisters, or half-sisters, and as the story goes, Cyrus charged the brothers with a breach of basic etiquette. They failed to hide their hands in the long sleeves of their formal robes. As ceremonial traditions go, it may have been intended to symbolize deference or an inability to harm a social superior. You have to imagine that someone's hand slipping a bit out of their robe occasionally was a regular occurrence, no big deal unless you made it one. Well, Cyrus made it one. He had both of the brothers executed. And this is where the story gets dicey. It's possible that it is a later piece of propaganda intended to condemn Cyrus. But it's also recorded by Xenophon, who absolutely adored the prince. The other possibility is that this ceremonial offense was a euphemism for some more significant threat or challenge to Cyrus's role as Keranos. 
The office of Karanos further complicates things. Normally, only the king could pass judgment on a noble of that status, royal grandsons of Artaxerxes I as they were. Did the status of Karanos grant Cyrus that authority? It's impossible to know, but it may even have been debated at the time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lysander's return was a welcome relief in Autumn 406. Officially, no Spartan was allowed to serve more than one term as admiral, so he was there as a deputy of another commander, but their orders were clear. Appease Cyrus by giving Lysander de facto control. He didn't arrive in Sardis until April 405, but back in Persia, Darius II was sick and his condition was worsening. Even as the great king became more infirm, Hermenes, the father of the late brothers Metrios and Ataboisakes, was already petitioning the king to recall and reprimand his wayward son. Ultimately, Darius was forced to recall Cyrus, if not to truly appease Hieromenes, then just to have his son present for a funeral. The recall order reached Cyrus just after his first meeting with Lysander, in which they had squared up any debts between Cyrus and the fleet, and made plans to construct more ships for a late summer or early autumn campaign. Once recalled, Cyrus had to accelerate their plans. Athens had amassed 180 triremes at Samos over the previous year, the single largest fleet in the Mediterranean since the disaster at Sicily. At that moment, Sparta had about 70 ships. Cyrus ordered his subjects, the newly reoccupied Ionian Greeks, to furnish their own ships. They'd have their autonomy when the war was over. For now, they listened to their Keranos. Between that and the ongoing construction, the Perso-Spartan fleet surged to 150 ships, 
still not advantageous, but not utterly doomed. Cyrus also put Lysander in charge of the entire Lydian treasury, either for as long as it took to win the war or until Cyrus returned. Cyrus wanted to win this war, whether he could be there or not. From the position of a satrap or even a king, this might seem like an insane decision, entrusting a province's entire wealth to a foreign military commander. But Cyrus was neither of those things. He was a Keranos, and the reason he had that office and those powers was to enable his Spartan allies to destroy the Athenians. In his absence, the local rulers of Anatolia had proven they could not be trusted with these funds, whereas Lysander thus far had. Even still, the war could not go on forever. All the tribute of Anatolia could only support a fully mobilized 150 trireme fleet for about one year, less if they started to build more ships. And that was without leaving any surplus to cover repairing infrastructure damaged in the war. To that end, Cyrus finally tapped into his own personal fortunes to make up the difference and cover about two full years under arms. If the war dragged on that long, he'd be able to intervene personally again. For now, it was all in Lysander's hands. But before Cyrus could leave, violence erupted in Miletus. Ever since the Ionian Revolt in the 490s, most of Ionia had happily governed its internal affairs with democracies. Lysander backed factions within several cities that favored oligarchy most likely with Cyrus's quiet approval. With all the power at his disposal, a minor civil war broke out inside the command center in Miletus. From Caria, Tissaphernes intervened on the side of the Democrats. And when they lost, he gave the Democratic leaders refuge in his territory. Rather than risk a costly revolt from Tissaphernes and further delay his return to Persia, Cyrus invited his predecessor as satrap of Lydia to come to court. It was an honor that no Persian could refuse, but also a carefully calculated maneuver to keep Tissaphernes out of Lysander's hair. By now, it was May, and a full royal retinue would take at least four months to reach the summer palace in Ecbatana. Cyrus's entourage may have moved a bit faster under arms and through the mountains. So if they chose to put down the Caducian Rebellion in Upper Media on their way there, it might have been faster. We don't know whether that happened now or during Cyrus's return trip. In the time it took Cyrus to reach the royal court one way or the other, the war in the Aegean was all but won. Now based in Ephesus, Lysander prepared his ships to sail with speed. He opened that year's campaign with a ruse, a series of raids in southern cities that had reverted to Athenian control. But even as a few squadrons caught Athens off guard, Lysander had the whole fleet racing toward the Hellespont. 
They shot past Samos before the Athenians realized what had happened, and they blockaded the strait once again. This time, though, they had learned from past mistakes and set up their blockade at the eastern end of the straits, where they could retreat into the open waters of the Sea of Marmara if need be. Their goal was to throttle the city of Athens' grain supply. Nobody was allowed in or out of the Black Sea, and with any luck, Sparta's allies in Byzantium would block off the Bosporus as well. The Spartan command took a base at Abydos once again, and when the Athenians arrived, they took a position directly across the Hellespont in the southern city of Aigospotamai. The sources are divided on what exactly happened. Diodorus Siculus mentions a naval skirmish, but Xenophon skips over that entirely. It might not be that strange, because like any good Persian naval war in Ionia, this battle was fought on land. The Battle of Aigospotomy was an Athenian Eurymedon. Lysander led his men across the Hellespont in an amphibious assault. They landed and did what Spartans did best, fought as an army. The Athenians were caught unawares and destroyed. Of their 180 triremes, nine escaped, and only one was considered seaworthy enough to make it all the way back to Athens. The rest had to flee to Salome in Cyprus, where the local king, a guy named Evagoras, was friendly enough despite being a Persian subject. That was the entirety of the Athenian fleet. There were no reinforcements in Athens to keep up the fight. As there had been no sea battle, the Spartan navy was the only fleet left in the Aegean. Lysander pressed his advantage. First, he executed 3,000 Athenian prisoners, and then he sailed down the Anatolian coast. Every city he encountered surrendered, with the exception of the capital on Samos. He left a small detachment to start up a siege and turned west, leaving any remaining Greek resistance to Pharnabazus and his subordinates. Lysander followed the same basic route that Datis and the Persian fleet had taken to Marathon 86 years earlier. They crossed the Aegean and dismantled the Delian League as they went. Those islands further from Persian territory now fell into Sparta's Peloponnesian League. Then Lysander reached Athens itself, all but starving thanks to the blockade of the Black Sea and cut off from any land trade by a Spartan army. The arrival of a Spartan fleet was the death blow for the Athenian Empire. They dragged the war out for a few more months under siege, but in March 404 BC, Athens surrendered to Sparta. The city walls were torn down, and the democracy was abolished in favor of an oligarchy so small, the Athenians called them the Thirty Tyrants. These were Spartan-friendly Athenian aristocrats, who spent the next eight months executing or exiling dissenters and confiscating private property for themselves. Predictably, there was an uprising to depose them in 403, but without their empire, 
the Athenians could never return to their previous strength. Alcibiades was among their victims. At some point, you gotta think he was delusional, because his plan was to appeal to the great king for support against Sparta. Even now, he thought Persia's ultimate plan was to pin down the Greek powers in a perpetual war. When the embassy he wanted to send got intercepted by Lysander, he tried to flee the city and go to Persia himself. While Alcibiades was preparing to leave, forces unknown set his house on fire, and when the ex-admiral charged out with a dagger to face his assassin, he went down in a hail of arrows. Word of this total victory would have reached Cyrus a few months later. Now that he was in far-off media, word wasn't traveling quite so quickly. No doubt he was pleased with his friend's success, and curious about who was managing his treasury. All told, the Persians had spent about 1,500 talents of silver, 25 tons, on the Spartan war effort vastly more than Sparta could afford on its own. And this investment paid off. The only powerful state actor on the empire's immediate borders had been eliminated, and their successors as masters of Greece were now indebted to Persia. They were a proper client state. For this one moment in 404 BCE, the Persians had conquered Greece in all but name but it is entirely possible that Cyrus never expected to go back to Anatolia and view the fruits of his labors when he left. When he departed, Darius II was dying, and by the time Cyrus arrived in Ecbatana, his father was barely hanging on. Darius II would die before the end of the year, but we're not quite there yet. Next time, we will wind the clocks back yet again and visit Egypt. Perhaps more than anywhere else in the empire, the kingdom of the two lands was on the precipice of great change. For now, though, go to intelligencespeechconference.com and buy your tickets with promo code PERSIA if you haven't already. And until next time... If you want more information about this show, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find stuff like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, where you can financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe, all sorts of affiliate links, and Patreon subscriptions. That will get you access at patreon.com slash historyofpersia, to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening. But of course, there are always free ways to do this as well, the best of which is tell people how much you like this show on social media. You can find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.